Hello, everybody. This is Emmett with your weekly installment of Exhaust, your podcast about why nothing feels possible. I am here with John and a guest, Meredith Angwin. I'm going to read her bio real quick. Um, as a working chemist, Meredith Angwin headed projects that lowered pollution and increased reliability on the electric grid. Her work included pollution control for nitrogen oxides in gas-fired combustion turbines and corrosion control in geothermal and nuclear systems. She was one of the first women to be a project manager at the Electric Power Research Institute. She led projects in renewable and nuclear energy. In the past 10 years, she began to study and take part in grid oversight and governance. For four years, she served on the coordinating committee for the Consumer Liaison Group associated with ISO New England, her local grid operator. She teaches courses and presents workshops on the electrical grid. And today she is here to talk to us about her latest book, Shorting the Grid, The Hidden Fragility of Our Electric Grid. Meredith, welcome. Very glad to be here, Emmett. So this is uh, exciting. I can't help but be reminded of Nassim Nicholas Taleb's book, The Black Swan, which came out in the middle of the financial crisis and uh, <laughs> right when it needed to. And uh, your book on the fragility of our grid happened right when everybody had to finally admit that the problems weren't in just California. How does it feel to be a prophet, Meredith? <laughs> well, it's kind of mixed. I think I, I, I'm not sure what, what uh, podcast I, I came up with as an analogy, but I think it's a good analogy. Like, you, it, you know, it's, it's wonderful to be right, but really, is it always like if you have, if you were somebody in politics and you said, you know, the neighbors next door are amassing troops on our border, we better do something about this. And everybody said, nah, nah, nah. And well, they got tanks there too, nah, nah, nah. And then you get invaded. Are you happy because you were right? Or mostly you're really unhappy because your country was just invaded. <laughs> so that's the way I look at it. I, I mean, um, or as a friend of mine said, proof of concept from your book would have been two rolling blackouts in, 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 in uh, Texas. They didn't have to go to extremes like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, it, it, it is interesting, though, that I divide. Um, the book came out in October, and several people said, as I was reading it, I suddenly realized that now I could understand what was happening in Texas. And to some extent, the, you know, when you set, launch a book, you try to, to publicize it. Well, you know, in late October, everything was about the election. It was hard to get any space uh, and so forth and so on. And then um, all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm divided into before Texas and after Texas, the interest in the, in the book as, as uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting experience for sure. Yeah. I'll, this. Yeah, ahead. I'll bet. I mean, um, I'm excited to get to talk about this with you in broader detail because uh, as you know, when we spoke with Mark Nelson, we got more of a play-by-play -play of how things went down in Texas, but there is a whole backstory yes. here that has happened over several decades. And one of the things we like looking at um, on exhaust is exactly that type of thing. Something that has shifted usually by insiders and people with technical know-how that end up really repatterning everyday life without anybody knowing it until there's a crisis. That seems to be the theme of the last 365 days in running. So I thought we'd st I'd start with like a pretty Simple question, but one that needs answering for us to continue, which is, what is the grid? Okay, the grid is the generators, which can be anything from a nuclear plant to a, a rooftop solar. The connections, which consist of both uh, large transmission lines, lines in, in your household, substations, and so forth. So I call that uh, connections because it's generally described as both transmission and distribution. So I just, I'll call it connection here from now. And then you, you're using end user, you're, you're using energy, you're using the, uh, uh, the electricity that comes from the grid. Now, all of that that I described uh, 
is is really uh, important, and it's also very well known. Electrical engineers really have a handle on how to run a grid in terms of electrical electrical energy going to where it's needed, when it's needed, and uh, having minimal levels of, of outages, mostly during uh, like a, a transmission failure, like for icing during a storm or something like this. And uh, that that's the what I call the physical grid. Then we have what I call the policy grid. The policy grid is the simplest version is how power plants and generators and everybody get paid because who gets paid what determines what's going to be on the grid. So for example, you hear that such and such type of plant just can't compete anymore. Well, that's due to the rules on how they get paid. A lot of my book is about how the rules are set up so that nuclear can't compete. Can't compete is sort of in air brackets because they're competing with groups that will, for example, a wind turbine will get payments for its renewable energy credits. It will get payments for production tax credits, which are very valuable. And it gets these payments and it can say, I will pay the grid. I will pay the grid a penny per kilowatt hour to take my power. If you're trying to sell kilowatt hours, you can't compete with that. And here's the nuclear plant, which is not getting production tax credit for cannot sell. uh, Well, in most places, it cannot sell zero emission credit. Some places it can. And it's trying to sell kilowatt hours. And it it is a very efficient nuclear plant. It, it It can sell the kilowatt hours for three cents and make it. But. It can't, it can't pay you to take its kilowatt hours and make it. And so then they're saying, oh, well, you know, the nuclear plants, they're just too expensive. There's, there's no way for them to not be too expensive if they're competing with people who will pay you to take their power. So that, that's the policy grid. And most of my book is about the policy grid and how it got that way in the areas which are run by regional transmission organizations, which is a lot of the United States, but not all of it. The Pacific Northwest and the American Southeast and a lot of the intermountain states like Utah are not in regional transmission organizations, but the East Coast, the the mid-Atlantic states all the way up to New England, the middle of America with MISO, Midwest ISO, uh, and Texas, California, are in regional transmission organizations. So you see that it's not a trivial thing that there are some regional transmission organizations. I I would say that well over half, probably three quarters of the people in the United States, I think I looked it up in my book, the exact number are in regional transmission organizations, but it's a lot. And people don't even know about them. And what I mean by that is that, for example, I was talking to a friend in Chicago and I said, oh, you're that little bit of PJM territory stuck in the middle of MISO. And she's like, huh? I said, no, no, I was just talking about your, RT, your regional transmission order. She had never heard of either of these two entities. Mm-hmm. They keep a low profile. <laughs> they really I definitely do. have never heard of any of this. Like, we're really, it does not filter down into the public consciousness in any meaningful way. I totally agree with you. As a matter of fact, I knew what ISO New England was, of course. But when I've been writing a pro-nuclear blog and a man on the coordinating committee for their consumer liaison group uh, emailed me and he said, hey, Meredith, would you like to begin going to the consumer liaison group meetings and, 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 uh, and uh, maybe run for the coordinating committee? I really enjoy your blog. And my first reaction was, there's a consumer liaison group, really? <laughs> I mean, it was just, I had no idea. I mean, what he was talking about, what the group might do, uh, what a coordinating committee for it would do, and so forth. It's very, very, uh, and let me also say that that's just the way a lot of the people on the various groups that run the RTOs like it. There's a whole section of my book about the attempt, there's, uh, to get a reporter uh, to be allowed to go to uh, the meetings of the ISO New England groups, uh, like um, 
the participants committee and uh, FERC actually made a really weird ruling on that. The reporter's company's uh, appeal to FERC said, we, we want our man, to, our, our reporter happened to be a man, to, to be able to come to these meetings. And the FERC ruled that he could come to the meetings because he was indeed a member of New England users. He was a user, but he couldn't report on them. He could just come to the meetings. He couldn't report yeah. on them. He I could mean, just come hang out because they're so much fun. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, they are a lot of fun in the sense that uh, there's lovely lunches. I mean, the lunches are really lovely. <laughs> They've got a good spread. <laughs> good spread. Definitely yeah. good spread. Totally. So uh, it seemed when I was reading your book that it used to be, this is sort of the memory from my childhood, um, at least because I grew up in Illinois in a town that was particularly obsessed with Thomas Edison. My elementary school was named after him. And there were these power stations everywhere. Right. And it was all consolidated usually by one company who would make a very resilient grid, but because they would sink a lot of money into that, they would sort of take it out of the high to the ratepayers. And people got uncomfortable with those monopolies over a certain period of time and then wanted to break them up or shift how the market works into some kind of auction which seems the auction process to me, by the way, that you lay out in your book seems insane. And I don't totally understand it. So I was wondering if you could walk us through how it's shifted and then how that auction process might work. Okay. Well, the way it shifted turned out to not actually do what it was supposed to do. The idea was that when they had a utility, which was the integrated utility model, that utility built the power plants, uh, built the transmission substations, and we delivered power to your your house. And it was responsible for that. Now, it, it shared with other utilities, big transmission lines marching across the country. They would carry power for more than one utility. A utility might own part of a power plant. It wasn't as like one utility, one power plant, and one transmission line. But basically, they were responsible for what happened. Okay? So if your power went out for a whole bunch of days, they were they were on the hook for, for doing something about it. They were considered to be a natural monopoly, which means that since there's only one wire going to your house, bringing electricity with it, you are in a monopoly situation. So that monopoly has to be regulated. It's sort of like if you were in a city and there's a city water supply. Well, you're not going to have your own water supply for your apartment. So somebody has to regulate that water supply, how much you get charged, how clean the water is, that the water is tested. And, and it would seem to be the same thing for the electricity. But the way they got paid was everybody was like, this is really weird. Because basically what they utility would do is it would go to the uh, Public Utilities Commission for that state and say, well, we need to build another power plant. We're projecting we're going to need a lot more power. We're going to have to build this power plant. We're going to have to put in some transmissions, and we're putting this into the rate base. Now, the rate base is the amount of capital they have invested, and they get paid enough to have a return on the rate base. So, for example, if they were allowed a 6% return, if they put a million dollars into the rate base, then they get 6% of that every year. So they're like, okay, we like this. So there was a tremendous uh, incentive to overbuild. And as what, what people used to say, gold plating. Okay. On the other hand, it also made a really reliable grid. Now they had problems to work out with large scale outages that spanned the whole area. But in terms of, in terms of cooperations between different utilities, they had problems to work out. But in terms of reliability, they, 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 they were all over it. They loved that word because that word was very closely related to high pay. And really, it, I used to think, well, this is pretty silly. But when you get right down to it, looking at what's going on with the regional transmission organizations, I've come to the conclusion that there is no really wonderful way to run a grid. It's always going to be an engineering trade-off. And there are worse things for a grid than to be a little bit expensive and very reliable. 
And we're seeing the worst things right now, in my opinion, in the regional transmission organizations. Okay, so they say, okay, we don't like this business of, of, of people say, we don't like this rate of return, spend money and then you'll get more money, spend yet more money and you'll get yet more money. This is terrible, we've got to stop this. So what they did was they, they basically broke up the utilities, some more, some less, depending on the area of the country, to this utility owns generators and this utility is a distribution utility. So for example, when you get a bill from your local utility, you're getting a bill from a distribution utility. That distribution utility has gone in to, uh, it probably does not own its own generators. It can, I mean, I'm telling you this stuff is, it is not totally, straightforward, formalized, that no distribution utility owns its own generators or whatever. But the theory is distribution utilities deliver the power and they bill you and they buy as cheaply as they can electricity from the generators. And the generators aren't truly utilities. They are often called merchant generators. That is, they're in there to sell kilowatt hours. Okay. So, one of the differences, excuse me, a merchant generator and a, the old utilities is the old utilities were on the hook for, for being there for you. They were really, their PUC would cut their rate of return. They'd say, oh, we're fining you so much, your rate of return's going down because of all the outages you've been having. There's no equivalent for the merchant generators. If the merchant generator like in Texas, sometimes the merchant generator, the gas plant was able to run, but it would look at how much it would have to pay for gas and it would think the distribution utilities are not going to pay me back this. I, I'm going to lose money on every, every kilowatt hour I make, big money. So they just go offline. That is one of the ways that the, the Texas grid had problems. It wasn't the only way. There was also a freezing of lines and some utilities couldn't get gas. But what I'm trying to say is, in general, there's not much of a, a, a penalty for any given generator to go offline to say, well, this isn't working for me. I'm losing money at this. Bye-bye. I'll be back when it's more reasonable around here. I wanted to tell you a little more about the auction for a minute. The auctions go like this. Let's say the utility wants 500 megawatts online right now. And it, it comes out, one generator says, I can give you uh, 100 megawatts for two cents per kilowatt hour. The next generator says, I can give you uh, 300 watts for four cents per kilowatt hour. And then a fifth generator says, I can give you 300 watts for six cents per kilowatt hour. So the, 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 they go in order of the lowest price to the highest. So the one that offered a two cents, all its power gets taken, bought, okay? The one that offered it four cents, all its power gets bought. The one that offered it six cents, only some of its power gets bought. But the thing that's interesting about this is they're all getting the six cents. That is the highest price power that was bought. That's called the clearing price. And the, whatever you bid in, you're getting the clearing price. So the one cent utility or, or two cent utility is getting six cents just as much as the top utility is getting. So when they utilities see a crisis on the grid and very high priced plants going online, they're not all unhappy. They're gonna get that same money. So that is actually, to, to be sure, let me spend another million dollars so I can make another 6% of a million is a perverse incentive. But I do hope that there's gonna be a crisis and the price is gonna soar. And we're going to be at the edge of rolling blackouts because that's when the price really goes up there. That's a perverse incentive too. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like, as you said, you know, John and I have talked about this a lot where we've entered into these scenarios where there are major parts of our infrastructure where a bunch of different small entities are all technically responsible for it 
to run, but that ends up meaning that no one's really responsible That's right. for That's it to run. Absolutely right. So is there any kind of like legal recourse you have as a person who is supposed to receive power from one of these companies like in Texas? Is there any possibility of being able to sue for damages or anything? Or is that somehow legally already taken off the table, you know, by other people before it even gets to you? Well, you know, in all honesty, I'm not a lawyer. My understanding was that assuming utilities were doing the best they can, it would be very hard to sue your local utility because the power line went down in an ice storm and you lost power for for 18 hours. They would say, well, we're doing what we can. That was an ice storm and your power line went down. We had our guys out there as soon as we could, but, you know, we had to deal with a lot of uh, power lines at that point. So what are we going to do? So you usually can't sue. The, the real question, in my opinion, is that this isn't what happened in Texas happened partially because it was cold weather. But it also happened because of the way the incentives were set up and the way the RTO was, uh, ERCOT was operating. And I don't mean like, oh, the ERCOT board of directors was bad people or anything like that. I mean, the rules for ERCOT led to things like uh, nobody winterized. Well, why would anyone winterize? Then they have to bid in higher at the auctions. You see, someone might say, I think you should winterize. And they'll say, we are right. That'll be great. I'll spend the money now. And then I won't be able to, then I'll be cut out of most of the times I could sell power because I'll be too expensive. And, and we saw that in the New England grid at, at one point. Uh, our grid operator put together something called the Winter Reliability Program. And what it did was it bought oil and a lot of gas-fired combustion turbines can are what they call dual fuel. They can use gas or they can use oil. The thing about gas is delivered just in time. It's just delivered just in time. While oil, you can store it on site. And so the New England grid operator did this program where it partially paid or mostly paid or uh, complex because the thing is, well, anyway, it paid for oil to be on site and only certain plants bid in to store the oil on site. That was also an auction. How much do we have to pay you to keep the oil on site? And, and only certain plants ended up with the oil on site. Well, they, then they had this big uh, crisis and it was just a big deal. There was no uh, rolling blackouts, but we came very, very close. And ISO New England put together a report, which I, I reference in my book called the uh, winter, uh, winter Event or whatever report. And it showed um, the oil that was burned on the grid. The, the, the natural gas was being so heavily used in homes, which have priority. The temperatures were going down to minus 30 at night in areas where they usually go down to maybe minus 10, uh, maybe minus five. And the oil was being burned. I mean, gas was being burned in homes. Power plants couldn't get it. And so because of ISO New England buying this oil, during the height of that crisis, 30% of New England's power was oil fired because the gas plants were using the oil that ISO New England had foresightedly bought for them. Well, in that report, they showed who was burning oil on the grid, what people who had been had oil purchased by ISO New England, what portion was oil purchased by ISO New England, and what portion was poor oil purchased by an individual power plant that just wanted to be sure to be able to get online. Well, it was over 90% of oil bought by ISO New England because no, no power plant, let's say this power plant, I said, well, I, I can invest in this oil, fine. We may not use it, fine. Then I've just spent all this money. It's, it's not useful for me. Now, and uh, so I guess what I'm trying to say is the incentives anywhere in an RTO system to be online during a crisis 
are just they're they're not there. The no the power plants aren't going to buy oil on their own. They're they're just not going to. Hmm. No matter how loud you play the trumpet, no cavalry's coming. Right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. I I guess I I don't like to blame the power plants. They are in a situation which is. Um, they would be fiscally irresponsible to be buying oil mm-hmm. in case somebody wants to use it. Nobody's in the old days, if it was a vertically integrated utility, that someone could say, the PUC could say, I want about half of you plants, you, you, and you to buy oil. Okay, you get it, and uh, we'll reimburse you for it, you know. Uh, because we want you to be reliable or mm-hmm. we'll reimburse you for it partially or we're ordering you to do it and you can put it in your rate base or right, right. there's all sorts of ways they could have been paid for it. But in the auction system, they can't be paid for it. it not in an ordinary way. Mm-hmm. Uh, as a matter of fact, one person was explaining to me that if, if a lot of plants decided to be public spirited and buy oil, and stay online, well, then the price on the grid wouldn't go up as high, you see, because they'd be, they'd be all available. They wouldn't be looking for that, the old power plant that only uses jet fuel, you know, and that's setting the clearing <laughs> price. Uh, and, and, you know, so they, they wouldn't be doing that. So it's totally lose-lose for them. First, they invest in the oil, and then they lower the price they get later. Mm. What a deal. Yeah, what a deal indeed. And so the idea, it seemed, was that this transition from vertically integrated, as you said, to the more dispersed auction RTO setup was meant to save the ratepayers money, right? Because people right. didn't want the perverse incentives of the natural monopoly. Did that happen? Well, I've studied, uh, there's not a lot of research on it that I could find. I found four papers uh, on it, Okay. And in all four of the papers, RTO areas were more expensive than other areas, and than, than vertically integrated areas. And some of the papers attempted to say, well, the Southeast uses a lot of coal, so that's cheaper. So, you know, that's why that RTO areas, I mean, it's, it's very hard to actually do an apples to apples to apples comparison. But there wasn't one of those papers where the RTO areas were cheaper than the other areas. <laughs> I mean, that was clear whether the entire reason was because it's an RTO area or not. I don't know. But and you might say, why is this? Well, I, I, I would say that um, the auction system doesn't give you a rate of return, but it sure pushes the price to the highest price on the grid. You know, so that that's a little bit of an interesting situation in its own way. And then I'm sorry to say that I, I, I Travis Cavula wrote a really great paper quite a few years ago. I, I don't remember 2009 or something, and he wrote this paper and he, he said that the and I've had this confirmed with other people that the rules for the RTO areas at FERC are like many times, three times at least, as long as the rules for the Public Utility Commission are vertically integrated areas. Because I keep having to do filings. They're like, for example, Mm. I told you about that winter reliability project. Well, FERC decided that they had to stop that winter reliability project because the ISO is supposed to be everything by auction and fuel neutral. And there they were, acting like oil was a special kind of fuel, which actually it is in this sense, you know? I mean, yeah. it, it isn't a matter of, you, you can just say, well, no, we're not going to burn oil. We're going to burn um, uranium. Uh, no, not at the last minute. You're not going to put up a nuclear plant. You, you are going to be able to put oil at the gas plant. Mm-hmm. I mean, of course I want them always to burn uranium, but when you get right down to it, if under ordinary circumstances, 40% of your grid is run by natural gas and all of a sudden they can't get gas, you got to do something besides try to hurry up and build a nuclear plant. Right, right. <laughs> That's one of the things that was really surprising is that you can't name 
any, you can't have any fuel preferences. Everything is sort of treated the same technically through the auction house. Of course, if you're getting paid to take money from, or to take electricity from a renewables thing, that seems a little bit different, but that does bring me to like another question, which is one of the ideas that we see a lot. Okay. This is very in vogue. Uh, is that we're just going to do like 100% renewables and we're not going to have to worry about climate change anymore. In reading your book, it seemed like uh, there were some problems with how renewables behave on the grid that advocates seem to... By renewables, there are a lot of different distinctions. You go through them. I'm really talking about wind and solar here. Yes, yes. Um, You know, so... Anybody who's listening, who's hip to all the different definitions of renewables, those that you were talking about, but you brought up that it, they fragilize the grid in surprising ways. And I was wondering if you could explain for our listeners how that works. Well, the first thing they do is that they can undercut other kinds of plants. So uh, because, they get, because they can pay the grid to take their power, then some other plant isn't running, and that plant is only paid for its power. So in the long run, they make the other plants on the grid less financially viable. But that's actually, in my opinion, not the worst thing. I mean, it, it, it's not good, but you could say, well, that's, that's it. They're out there competing, and they're out competing the other plants. And One of the things is that we used to have a grid where we acknowledged how demand worked on the grid. So for example, in the middle of the night on a spring night, nobody's, uh, some hospitals are still running, some industrial processes are still running. There's certainly demand on the grid, but it isn't very high. And that amount of demand is on the grid all the time. That's what people refer to as the base load on the grid. It's there 24-7, 365. Well, okay, maybe on, uh, maybe on Easter Sunday it goes down a little bit. But basically, it is the amount of demand on the grid all the time. And so we used to say, oh, we understand this. This is like how do we transport goods across country? Well, we have these great, big, very efficient diesel trucks, semis, and they transport huge, I mean, big, heavy stuff behind them. Now, are they flexible? No. How do they take off like a rabbit from a stop? No. Can they accelerate quickly up a hill? No. They're not flexible, but we, we're okay with that because per mile, they're a lot cheaper than trying to do it with a set of uh, sports cars. But what has happened is that with the, um, the wind and solar, which go on and off very quickly when they want to, the idea is that the rest of the grid has to be flexible to, to, uh, to uh, make up for when the wind dies down suddenly or when clouds go across the sun. And one of the things I, I like to say is I, if you have a power plant on the grid, in general, the size of the grid and the size of the power plant have to be in sync so that the power plant is less than 10% of the total demand on the grid. You don't want one power plant goes offline and all of a sudden 25% of your grid has just gone away. That's not good. So people look at solar and they say, oh, it's a distributed system. I've got stuff on my roof and then there's a solar farm by the interstate and it's distributed, it's all over. There's no big old power plants here, but there is. When the sun goes down, it's like the whole, the whole power plant it goes offline. So what happens is that if you have wind and solar on the grid, you have to have what's called fast-asking resources to back them up. And that turns out to be natural gas. Natural gas is the perfect backup for wind and solar. And it knows it. <laughs> you, you know, I've seen several, well, I, I don't want to be naming names. There are several energy 
institutions, centers, at institutions of higher learning, at prestigious universities. And these are sponsored, not-for-profits, giving, and they have, they take money and they write reports and they teach and they give seminars. And they are very pro-renewables. And I'll tell you about, it's almost impossible for me to get, uh, to talk about nuclear and anything like that. And um, I guess what I'm saying is these centers are generally oil and gas sponsored. And, and people say, well, you see, they used to want to sell oil and gas, but now, now, they have, now they've become really good citizens. That's why they're sponsoring renewables. No, they're sponsoring renewables because there's studies that show that if you have one megawatt of renewables on the grid, you need slightly more than one megawatt of fast-acting backup. And who's the fast-acting backup? The fast-acting backup is gas and oil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's why um, when next time you read a study, which is about how wonderful renewables are, and we're going to get to 100% renewables, the only question is, how are we going to get from 80% renewables to, a, to 100% when you consider transportation? That's the last question that's open. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's not the last question that's open. <laughs> If you had 80% renewables on the grid, you had a beautiful situation for a lot of natural gas. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've seen a few different responses to like the BP ads that feature like wind turbines or solar panels. And it's either, oh, like we're winning, like even they have admitted that we need this, or B, they're not being sincere. They don't care about climate change. And I'm sort of like, neither of those responses matter. What matters is how they recognize what they can get out of it, which is their bottom line, right? Like BP is not just taking out glossy ads advocating for renewables because they're good citizens or because they're cynically manipulating you. It's because they understand that as long as those are built out at scale, there will always be a market for BP products. Exactly. What, um, Gas and oil really don't want to see being built out at scale is 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 uh, is nuclear. That's my opinion. Oh yeah, as you can tell, we are a big. I've got my Adams for Peace shirt uh, oh, right here. Right. That's um, great. Yeah, we're we're big uh, nuclear advocates here. So perhaps we should um, talk about some of its benefits for the grid, if you'd like. Let me just. You know that I wrote a book about nuclear. Oh, yeah. And you defended Vermont Yankee, which I commend you for. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It was uh, it was hard work uh, defending Vermont Yankee. I was in an email correspondence with someone else earlier today, which made me going down memory lane. And um, our 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 governor at the time, Governor Shumlin, was being interviewed on Fox News and he was saying, I'm planning to shut down Vermont Yankee. And someone said, well, Vermont Yankee makes uh, 30% of the, uh, the electricity in your area. What are you gonna do about it? And he said, that's no problem. Germany gets 30% of its electricity from solar. My God. So he really said that. My God. So you see, the thing is, it's, it's kind of uphill, some of this stuff, it's kind of uphill. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so uh, we can we can indeed uh, talk a little more about nuclear. I always love to do that. Okay, great. Um, so I suppose we should run through a few things in terms of nuclear. Um, we're going to table the waste conversation for like a separate episode we have planned about nuclear, but I think we should talk about what it does for the grid that we could see as beneficial, even if... Um, the auction system might disadvantage it a little. What are the merits of having a bunch of nuclear plants hanging out on your grid? Well, the main merit is that you have very, very reliable power without any pollution. Um, you don't have, uh, I, I went into renewables after doing a bunch of work on nitrogen oxide pollution from gas fire plants. And um, nitrogen oxide pollution is, is uh, 
I think it's kind of devilish. What I mean by that is that um, if you, you're working on sulfur pollution, you can choose a, a fuel that doesn't have sulfur. But nitrogen oxide pollution comes from the fact that at high temperatures, the air burns itself. The nitrogen in the air unites with the oxygen in the air. So when you're running at a high temperature, you're making nitrogen oxides. Now, you can try to, you can, you can of course, you can mitigate this some. Uh, you can do, for example, complex burners, which keep high oxygen levels away from the hottest part of the flame so that you make less nitrogen. These are called low NOx burners. NOx being N-O-X because, okay, uh, <laughs> um, the X can be one or two. Anyway, so low NOx burners. Uh, you can shoot in uh, water to cool the whole thing down. You can put the uh, effluent from the burner through a um, catalytic process where you put in ammonia and the ammonia reunites with the NOx to make N2. Of course, you have to be feeding in the ammonia all the time and you have to have the ammonia uh, well balanced because most places don't like you just emitting extra ammonia so that you can get all the NOx. So it's a, a balancing process. So anyway, if you have a, a nuclear plant you know you've got that power there and it will just keep putting out the power without making nitrogen oxides, without particulate pollution. And uh, I, just really, I just really like it for that. It, it, very, very steady. I wanted to say another thing about it. If you, you, uh, our local coal plant, it's a small coal plant, uh, Merrimack Station, it burns about, if it were running full time, which it rarely does, it burns uh, 40 cars of coal. And, and, and the thing is that you can see the coal cars coming, right? Here's a coal car, it's full of coal. What you don't realize is that coal car is like, uh, coal has a atomic weight of 12 and CO2 has a molecular weight of 44. Every coal car, every ounce of coal in that coal car is going to be 44 over 12 ounces of carbon dioxide in the air. And you don't see the carbon dioxide. You can see the coal car. My gosh, that's a lot of coal there. But 44, if it was 48, it would be four times as much. It would be four coal cars worth wow. of CO2. And it's 44, so it's a little less. If it was 36, it'd be three coal cars for worth. Mm -hmm. I'm, I'm just trying to say that the thing is that it's very, um, it's very uh, perturbing because people will say, you understand we're putting up tons of carbon dioxide. And I'm not going to get into some, whether this is a horrible thing or not. I don't, I don't think it's a good thing. But anyway... We agree with you. For okay, <laughs> I, I mean, I just, I, but I don't. I, I, I'm not here to debate about climate because I totally, yeah. Okay, so let's say if somebody says, "Well, we're putting up tons of carbon dioxide," and people go like, "I don't see any around here." And what <laughs> I like to do is just think about if you were burning a hundred-ton car of coal then you are making three coal cars worth of carbon dioxide if you could see it, which you can't. Wow, that's remarkable. That's remarkable. So we've got that it's carbon-free. We've got that it's very, very reliable. I would also like to add, just as a personal note, as we care about this type of thing on the show, that uh, the jobs are usually high paying. They last a long time. Nuclear plants can run for maybe 100 years, maybe immortally. We're finding that out now. And they create an ecosystem of good union jobs around them. Yeah. You know, So that's another thing. They stabilize communities and bring up the wealth level there. Uh, without polluting the air. I also want to say that in, in the small rural communities that they are often located in, they are one of the few kinds of jobs that has an upward track. That is, mm -hmm. you, can, 
You can join as an assistant to the health physics person, then you can take some courses, then you can become the health physics person yourself, or you can join uh, in operations and eventually move up to a sup uh, shift supervisor. I mean, there's a lot to be said for a good paying community of jobs in a rural area. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so I have a friend who also read your book and he said, if you guys bring up nuclear, you need to ask her where she stands or what she, how she thinks about this debate between the small is beautiful SMR tiny reactors versus big gigawatt actors. What do you think about that for listeners that aren't initiated in this? It's basically a debate between whether we're going to have smaller size, like module reactors or whether these big, current generation three reactors that we all know and we all love. Well, let me just say that I think we're going to need both. I mean, when you get right down to it, we need power plants of different sizes for different uses on the grid, which is something that the smallest bureaucratic people don't really except i mean they you know in other words from from their point of view a a wind turbine with a, a backup uh gas turbine and then one goes off one goes on one goes off one goes on woo, 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 is, is, is 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 as useful as a steady bigger thing but it isn't because you've got all this ramping up and ramping down and it's inefficient so for if you have a big city like new york city then what you need is indian point nearby to provide it a lot of power. On the other hand, if you're in a rural area of, uh, uh, you know, I don't know, um, New Mexico, um, Dakotas, whatever, Indian Point would be a little bit of overkill. That would be the whole grid, you know. Um, and so, you know, having lived in New Mexico, I can say that that is true. <laughs> that would be <laughs> a bit too much. <laughs> and 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 so what what you need is. Uh, the the a uh, mixture also i as i understand there's a lot of sort of lying with statistics that goes on when you see a low profile they they even our local grid operator starts the low profile at base load. So all you see is it going up from 10 gigawatts to 16 gigawatts and back down to 10. You don't see the fact that the 10 is there 24 seven, okay? And all you see is the up and the down. But what I'm trying to say is you could use the big uh, ones, uh, the big nuclear plants for that base load and a mixture of small nuclear plants, maybe even solar, maybe even gas could do the load following. You see, and, 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 and they're making the smaller nuclear plants more flexible for following load and so forth. But that doesn't mean that I want only small nuclear plants because when you get right down to it at the bottom of the line, it is still you know, at one o'clock in the morning in April, there is that baseload that's there all the time. And you don't want it to be met with just tiny plants that go on and off all the time. You want it to be like those semis. They're slow at climbing the hill, but they're the cheapest way to get things from city to city. Mm -hmm. I mean, assuming that, that it's inappropriate to use rail, uh, which is right. also really good. I guess at the risk of opening a can of worms. So as somebody who's pretty external to all this, it sounds great. So what's your problem? <laughs> you know, like, why isn't this happening? Can you, and that's not adverse. Like, so what, what are the problems here? Then um, you've made a really good public case for these as being like a primary power utility, um, like source for us. Mm -hmm. But obviously there are reasons why we don't live in that world right now. One that I can readily intuit is the fact that like some of the biggest and most powerful companies in the world are not nuclear power companies. Um, that might be one problem. And that the, the ones that are kind of significantly large and uh, influential are in the other part of this market, you know, oil, mm -hmm. gas, and so on. But is there like, more that I should know about this, anything that you could tell me that would help clarify for me, like what exactly the reasons are, you know, that this isn't happening. Uh, maybe like the fear of nuclear problems well, like Fukushima, that might be another thing, but yeah. Fear of nuclear 
has been a cause of people wanting to shut down nuclear plants for fear they'd be harmed by them. But the, the main thing that fear of nuclear has done, I think, is provide ammunition for people to claim to have been harmed, okay? Um, for example, one nuclear activist in, 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 that I know of, uh, he, uh, he got some type of cancer. It's not uncommon. I mean, actually, a third of the people in the U.S., I think, will, because we, it's a disease of older people, many people will get it. And I don't like that. I've, I've had it myself. And, uh, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in a survivor's group and all that. But he's decided that it's because there's a new, there was a nuclear plant in his township. He didn't live anywhere near it, but he's decided that's what did it. So the fear of nuclear, it energizes people to be against the plants. But I think that the major thing is the competent the, the the oil and gas plants they they know how much money they're making with the current setups and they're not they're not going to go away from that and i'm going to be kind of radical here but at one point i think it was bismarck that said that uh War is just an extension of diplomacy. You know, in other words, war and diplomacy are the same thing, but they're different. And I have come to the conclusion that some of the academic studies that are sponsored by the uh, oil and gas are just, they're just a different way of, 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 uh, of pushing the agenda of the oil and gas industry, even if they're at a prestigious university and this and that. And so I think that the reason we, I guess when you get right down to it, fear is one thing, fears can be overcome, but you gotta follow the money to know who's driving it. And that's, that's my feeling about it. Yeah, well, I mean, I think of, when I think of um, the sort of hack academics that do this, I'll only name one name and it's, Mark Z. Jacobson's ideas about radically expanding all of the hydro that we can possibly get. And then when people went and checked the numbers, they said, that's impossible. And then he sued them <laughs> for things like that. It's a very aggressive environment once you get into it, because a lot of money is at stake for these things and a lot of prestige and a lot of power. And that's harder to overcome than just fear. I agree with you. I mean, the thing is, you. I was thinking about my husband, he, he, he was in the Navy when he was a young man. And in the Navy, he said the, the scariest thing he had to do in the Navy was during training, damage control is very, very important. And so he was like, okay, you've got, you've got a hose. There's a burning compartment in there. Go into the compartment and, turn, and put out the fire. And it's actually burning in there. I mean, it's not, it's not simulated flames. And he said that that was the scariest part of his training, of, of the, his Navy training. And um, so in a way, he had taught himself with help from the people who were running it to not be afraid to walk into that compartment because he knew he had a way to defend himself and to beat the flames. And I think people can unlearn fear. But when there's a lot of money behind keeping the status quo, I think that the status quo will probably be kept. Yeah. Well, especially when you have groups like um, uh, Greenpeace that uh, like they, <laughs> they sell up natural gas in Germany and they call it pro wind natural gas oh, because so of course there's like the oh 1% of wind, <laughs> sorry, pro wind vegan natural gas. I don't know why vegans in there, but it is. So it's like 1% wind and then 99% natural gas because of course it's more stable can you possibly be called vegan? 1% hydrogen. It's 1% hydrogen. That's right. 1% hydrogen. Yeah. 1% hydrogen. Yeah. 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 You know, and, and, and then if you see some other newspaper article, it says we're already using hydrogen. They're using <laughs> it in Germany. Right. Exactly. <laughs> or when so, they, um, go ahead, John. 
Oh, no, it's, it's fine. I was just trying to collect my thoughts. Because another thing that I think we encounter a little bit is, and you can, maybe this is a good point to say, correct me if I'm wrong about my impression of this, but it seems like nuclear was always tied deeply to the federal government at some level. Like, it doesn't seem like nuclear ever really flourished without some kind of deep connection to the state in America. And earlier, um, we'll say like build outs of our nuclear capability and hopes for that in the early 20th century. Does that seem like that's probably the only way forward or like, is it, is that going to be what's required again? Well, I don't think it's required again, but I do think what we have to get away from the RTO system, which really the only thing you can afford to build is a, is a, is a, is a gas fire turbine or a renewable. That's the only thing you can afford to build. Uh, you never get your money back from it building anything else. So we have to, now you, you might say, well, Meredith, you wrote a book about the RTO system. So naturally that's what you think is the root of all evil. But I do think that federal government involvement can, can perhaps help. For example, uh, let me go back to when I was uh, younger. Uh, when I grew up in Chicago, the air was almost unbreathable from all the coal smoke. And then there were uh, laws passed, Clean Air Acts and so forth and so on, and, and the air got a lot better. The, the federal government can have a role in making the world healthy and safe for the, the citizens. And that part of that role could be underwriting nuclear plants, uh, saying, well, every area of the country should have one half of its baseload needs in nuclear, and we're, we're going to underwrite it up to there. You know, um, I don't know. I, I think, the. I mean, nobody gets on the freeway and says, this interstate highway system, it was named after Dwight Eisenhower. It's a federal program. I'm getting off this freeway. Nobody says that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think the federal government can have a role. The thing is, I, I don't like to get too far afield. I, I have some things in my book about how I think it should go in the future, I don't want to say, well, I, I'll talk about the problem. Somebody else can come up with a solution. But in my opinion, the solution is uh, base load being pretty much 100% nuclear and load following be par being partially nuclear and that's what, and, and, and being with some renewables and natural gas. That's what I'm talking about. But, um, <laughs> you know, I can't really, um, really solve it all because different areas are different areas. Uh, let, me, let me give you a, an example. Uh, I'm near the Connecticut River and the Connecticut River has a dam on it, uh, Wilder Dam, which is actually in the town I'm in. I'm in the town of Wilder. And um, Wilder Dam used to be used uh, for peaking, which meant that it was, it was used when there was highest demand on the grid. And then, um, People were concerned, rightly, that, that using it that way led to more water flow at peak hours, and it led to uh, erosion of the banks downstream, and uh, it led to uh, fluctuations in the pond behind the dam. And basically, it, isn't a, it, it wasn't as ecological as using it as mostly run of the river that is running it most of the time. And uh, so they're, they're going to go forward running it most of the time. And what I'm saying is that you, you might say, well, uh, in some area of the country, they've got a lot of hydro. And so they can uh, back up the wind turbines with hydro. I'm, I'm thinking not if they have the people around here who are going to look at the river and be very interested in the conservation of the river and be saying, well, we understand we have the dams and we're not trying to tell you to take out every dam we ever put in, but please stop using them full force for two hours a day. And so... Um, Anyway, I, that's why you can't 
you can't define what some other area of the country is going to do. At least I, I don't feel you can. Uh, I, I feel that a lot of these sweeping things are immodest and don't understand that other people have opinions and other people know their own territory and they know their own problems in their territory. And uh, having said that, I will still go right ahead and say that baseload nuclear and some load following nuclear plus, um, plus solar and, and natural gas for load following would be very nice. Yeah, I think I can sign on to that. But I totally understand. This is something we talk about a lot on the show is the split between a Jeffersonian respect for localism and smaller governments, but also a Hamiltonian understanding of economies of scale and state involvement in these things. And that so much of our history in this country is the sort of tarrying between and conflicts with these two legacies that we live with. I think it's kind of good though. I mean, the thing is the Jeffersonian one, means that people take more responsibility for their area around them. They don't expect that the cavalry from the federal government are always going to make the right decision. They're, they're there to make the right decisions themselves. But again, like I say, we couldn't have built up um, the Bonneville Power, TVA, the interstate system, uh, Clean Air Act. These are all federal levels. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um, Well, I think we'll end it there on that nice synthesis of those two (laughs) traditions. Meredith, thank you so much for joining us. It was an absolute delight. Yeah, this was very instructive. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy to meet you. You as well. Some other programs together or uh, meet at a meeting at some point when people go to meetings again. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. That would be great. Mm -hmm. Um, So, listeners. Thanks for joining us. Stay safe out there, and we'll see you next time. Oh